You must remember this A kiss is still a kiss A sigh is just a sigh The fundamental things apply As time goes by And when two lovers woo Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Director's Club Podcast. I am Jim Laskowski, and today we're going to party like it's episode 99, because it is. And I needed a lot of help for this particular director, since he's made so many movies that it's hard to know where to begin. Uh, I enlisted the help of Director's Club Emeritus Patrick Rapole. Hello. Who you may remember as the Tarantino of movie podcasters. He's quick-witted, sharp, spry, never at a loss for words. Can't wait to talk some critiques with him. Welcome, Patrick. I thought I, th- I thought you were going to say I have a troublesome uh, relationship with black culture, but uh, <laughs> I like I like I like that version of the Tarantino podcast much better. Good. Also joining us today is WHPK's very own Sergio Mims. Hello, everybody. How you doing? Very good, very good. Uh, also, write you also write for a number of publications, and you've been on here a couple of times to talk uh, classic directors. So, um, right. appropriately, you're on for Michael Curtis. <laughs> right. He made films that Hungarian, James Cagney and Errol Flynn. Yeah, yeah. Michael Curtis. Captain Blood, Casablanca. Hopped around from genre to genre. Michael Curtis I don't want to hear you say That he wasn't an author That shit simply won't play Cause Michael Michael Curtis Make films for the brothers Fast as a breeze Yeah, yeah Five a year I'm expecting this to also be somewhat of an educational episode because there are many titles that uh, I didn't get to see due to lack of time, the holidays and whatnot that I'm sure Sergio can enlighten us about so I can add them to my queue. But I also have a couple of titles that I saw for the very first time that truly deserve your attention um, if you're a cinephile. Uh, So we'll get to that sooner than later here on the show. Um, But yeah, uh, Sergio, you were before we officially started the introduction here. You were sort of giving us the uh, um, the Wikipedia for Michael Curtis here, and I'm I'm just curious to um, your relationship with his work and uh, you know just how you began to uh, follow his career. It is appropriate that we're. taping the show today because Curtis was born on Christmas Eve. And um, there you go. Perfect timing for that. He was born on Christmas Eve in Budapest in 1886. He died in 1961 in Los Angeles. So he lived a long, long life. Um, 
how I got into his movies is, you know, when you're a kid growing up, they would show his movies all the time on TV. Right. Of course. Yeah. Um, of course, the classics, you know, uh, Casablanca, uh, Dodge City, Mildred Pierce, The Adventures of Robin Hood. Every, most, I'm sure everybody listening has seen one or more of those films. And just, just a tiny tip of the iceberg of the number of movies this man made. He was insanely prolific. Um, in the United States alone, yeah, he first came here around 1926. He made his first film around 1926, 1927. To his last film in 1961, The Camacheros, with John Wayne, he directed 100 movies, literally 100 films. Wow. Um, in between the years 1930 to 1940, he directed 45 movies. Um, seven alone in 1933, four in 1934, six in 1935. He directed another four movies in 1939. And I should say that from the beginning to 1954, he made all his films exclusively for Warner Brothers. He was Warner Brothers' go-to major house director. He made that studio. Studio made him. Uh, so it's not surprising that after he left Warner Brothers, after a lawsuit, and for the last seven years of his directing life, he kind of floundered. His films simply were not as good, even though they were popular and they were very successful, such as White Christmas with Bean Crosby and Danny Kaye, which is still considered a um, holiday classic, uh, which he made for Paramount. Um, it's nowhere as good as his stuff that he did for Warners. But he is the perfect example of a true Hollywood classic studio director. Um, I think he gets short shrift. I think he gets terribly overlooked and underrated as a director who had no distinctive personality. I think that's wrong. He definitely did. Steven Spielberg once called him brilliant, and he was. And I, When he was I, at his best, he was brilliant. I've read... Uh, on a number of occasions that he is sort of the anti-auteur in a way where, I mean, you could say that he didn't, he wasn't consistent in terms of the types of films he put out. He, he dabbled in so many different genres. Exactly. And, right. And, uh, but you're saying that he, he, he did have a distinctive, uh, touch to each film that yeah. he did. Yeah, he very much, as I said, he um, directed some 60 movies, or we don't even know how really how many, somewhere between 50 and 60 movies in Europe before he came in, before he was brought to the United States by Daryl Zanuck, who before he ran Fox was an executive at Warner Brothers, and he saw one of his movies and brought him to the States. And he's, his, many of his films are steeped in what I would call German expressionism. Uh, the visual style of this movie, the visual styles of many of his films, even though they're not, even though he, he didn't make many films that were considered film noir, such as Mildred Pierce or The Breaking Point, um, there definitely are film noir touches in his many of his movies. The dark, the use of shadows uh, and light. Um, the odd angles he would use. He loved using strange tilted angles, overhead shots 
um, low angle shots, um, use of shadows up on the wall. You see that in many, many of his movies, his war films, his suspense thrillers, um, and many of his dramas. He was very steeped in that sort of German expressionism type of filmmaking, such as you would see in a Fritz Lang movie. Yeah, I, I noticed that rewatching Casablanca that some characters are introduced via shadow on the wall. And uh, right. I found that, that to, again, to be a, a distinctive directorial flourish that uh, did pop up on a couple of other film noirs I caught of his. Um, and I think we I should. Think, I think the most famous, uh, probably, shadows on the wall moment in one of his films would be the sword fight at the end of The Seahawk. Yeah, exactly. Right, right. Where exactly. literally Errol Flynn goes out of his way to destroy all the candles in the room so that his shadow will be more, more prominent. Right. He, um, you know, he, right, he gets a knock because he directed everything. And, I, and, and the funny thing was that, uh, like I said, he was Hungarian. He never mastered the English language particularly well. There are legendary stories about his butchering of the English language. But um, he um, directed everything like Westerns, uh, musicals like Yankee Doodle Dandy, comedies, dramas. Um, horror. Biblical for, the, epics. First, the first horror, color horror film is Dr. X. It, right. Exactly. Um, y- y- I mean, his range was extraordinary. And like I said, he doesn't get enough credit. And you really don't have directors like that anymore. I mean, Steven Spielberg to a certain point, maybe Ron Howard, who just want to dabble in everything. Uh, most directors tend to stay in their lane. And, and But also because of who he was. He was a studio director. He had to be able to direct everything because the studio would assign him properties. So they will say, well, okay, now you're doing that Errol Flynn movie. Okay. Mm-hmm. And then after that, you're going to do this Western. Then after that, you're going to do this drama. So you had to be versatile enough to do everything. Yeah. And so, um, like I said, he was, I mean, Warner Brothers had several, of course, like any studio, had several directors, um, you know, on, um, on under contract who were house directors and other directors who would come in occasionally, freelance directors such as Howard Hawks, who would do a film here and there and then leave. But uh, Curtis was Warner's standard guy. I mean, they went to him for everything because they knew what he could deliver. Mm-hmm. Was it was his first big hit for them, Captain Blood? Yeah, it was. It was. You can say that. I mean, he had done many films before before then. But um, it's, I think it's kind of fair to say it was Captain Blood. Well, also, you can say the early horror films he did, too. Like as, um, he did a one called the, the, Walking, um, the Walking Dead, I believe. Yeah, but the uh, the, the Murders in the Rude Morgue sure. or uh, the, uh, Mystery, the Mystery of the Wax Museum. Yeah, yeah. Um, right. Those and those films are really deep into German expressionism, mm-hmm. especially his early horror films. Very deep into German expressionism. Doctor um, X. Part of it is the two-strip Technicolor process. Uh, right. Kind of has so a was so palette. was um, Wax Museum. They're yeah, in the early Technicolor two-strip. System. Right, but especially Doctor X has a really fascinating because it's a very modern movie, which is you know, the antithesis of what Universal was doing at the time. You know, it's all following this reporter who's on the case of the serial killer and all the serial, all the subject, uh, all the suspects are scientists. 
And the plot plays out almost like a version of Hamlet where they're trying to arouse the scientists by reenacting murders in front of them. It's, it's exactly. kind of a crazy movie. Um, and the two strip technical processes, it's, I, I, I had seen a, like Broadway melody uh, and a couple other films, but usually uh, it's, it's very ugly, but in the case of Dr. X and mystery, of the wax museum, those horror films that, that color process adds so much to it, that ugliness where the whole world kind of just looks like bruise. Um, I really enjoyed Dr. X a lot, a lot more than I thought I was going to. Yeah, the, the, the early Technicolor films have this odd waxy quality to them. And mm-hmm. um, it does really play well with particular either very expensive to shoot color, so he really, but if you look at his little later color, he didn't do that many, it wasn't until the late movies but you look at his early color films like just better but the image shinier it's um more pale like and it gives the film a vibrancy especially if you see it on blu-ray it gives the film a vibrancy yeah. uh in those, that uh, those three strip technicolor movies look phenomenal on blu-ray i mean obviously adventures of robin hood is maybe the most famous other than wizard of oz technicolor movie mm-hmm. um Ever, but uh, yeah, all of those movies when you watch them in a really high definition and you see the detail that goes into, um, but still the yeah the very pastel kind of colors that you mentioned it's it's always so gorgeous. Yeah, yeah, I, I think, and I, I should, think he worked should... really well even early on before you know going into the Technicolor. The, the, something like The Walking Dead is a very interesting blend of gangster film, horror, a little sci-fi. Cause it, but what makes it exceptional is that cinematography that we were talking about earlier with the with the eerie long shadows. But it, I think there's a standout moment in that film where um, we see um, one of the characters, uh, Elman, I believe is his name, getting executed. And there's this incredible poignant sort of cello playing, and the shadows of the jail cell bars are flowing dramatically across the floor. Um, so I mean, he brought so much uh, character just to the use of shadow in, in a black and white setting. And I even read, um, I don't agree necessarily, but someone like Dave Kerr actually said that once Michael Curtiz got into Technicolor and in the, in the fifties that his, his films, uh, devolved somewhat, like the quality well, lessened to, to, to extent, I, I do agree with him with that. He, he kind of lost his way after he left Warner's. Hmm. Um, he, um, he became a free, like I said, he became a freelance director. He, um, as I said, in about 1954, he had a big disagreement with Warner Brothers for Jack Warner, which led to a lawsuit in a court case. And he left and primarily became a freelance director, even though he basically directed for two studios, Fox and Paramount. And those films are flatter. They're, okay. you know, they're using, he's now shooting CinemaScope or VistaVision and almost exclusively in color, and they're flatter. They don't have the pace that his earlier films do. They don't have the snap, the bounce. Uh, you look at, well, this is kind of unfair, but you look at um, Camacheros, which has really bad pacing problems. Yeah. Now, I say it's unfair because... He was very ill at the time. He died of lung cancer. He was very ill at the time. And there are two stories. One was that he 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 didn't really shoot all the film. One story is that he was forced to leave and John Wayne took over. And John Wayne could not direct 
his way out of a paper bag. <laughs> the other story was that there were days where he couldn't direct, and then John Wayne would direct those days. But he didn't direct all the film, and it really suffers from that. The, the film doesn't work at all. The re, actually, the remake by Gordon Douglas, who in effect became Curtis's replacement at Warner Brothers as the go-to guy. The remake called The uh, We Are Conscious is better, but we're getting off track there. But yeah, the, his, his later films are not that great. Not that great. Uh, they were very successful, um, but no, it, he had lost whatever talent he had. You know, it may be due to illness or because he, was, he has just simply directed himself out. You know, he yeah. made so many movies. What else can you do? Yeah, he got burnt, he got burnt out. I bet it's not it's not unlike what happens to you know a vast majority of directors is just once they get to a certain age they slow down and they you know their films suffer and that's you know that's that's just sort of what I happens. Mean, that was too with John Ford. John Ford made something like 125 movies in his career. His, John Ford last few movies like Giant Autumn tried to sit through that. <laughs> you know, um, Billy Wilder was great. Billy Wilder, Billy Wilder, buddy, buddy, buddy. Alfred yeah. Hitchcock. Mm -hmm. It happens, you yeah. know. It happens. Yeah, you know. But if you, but you, you look at his overwhelming body of work of Michael Curtiz. It's, it's really outstanding, and I think he really deserves a lot more credit than than he gets. As I said, there are a lot of great stories about him. You know, I mean, his butchering of the English language. Um, his famous expression was "Bring on the empty horses." which meant um, a horse that didn't have a rider. You know, you just wanted a horse to run across on the screen. He called them empty horses. <laughs> and um, later, David Niven used it for the title of his autobiography, Bring on the Empty Horses. And then there's another famous story about when he was shooting Casablanca. And um, he went to the uh, art director and he said, you know, I want to, I want to poodle. He said, what? I want the poodle for this shot. And he said, what color? And the director said, we, you idiot, we're shooting in black and white. I, I want the poodle. <laughs> you know. So the, a couple of hours later, guy showed up with a, with a poodle. And he goes like, what is this? He said, you said you wanted a poodle. I don't want any <laughs> damn dog in a movie. I'm talking about a poodle in the street. In the street. He's talking about a puddle. <laughs> right. Well, one, And then one, there... Go ahead. Sorry. Right. And then, no, but there's another story more risque. There's another story that when he was famous, notorious for uh, auditioning young aspiring actresses in his trailer during lunch breaks. Uh -huh. And so um, he was shooting the film Passage to Marseille, which just came out on Blu-ray on Warner Archive. And Peter Laurie, who's in the movie, Everybody knew about this. He got the sound people to put a microphone under his bed or under the couch. Uh oh. So where was it? so during lunch break, everybody in the whole set would hear heard him having sex with this woman. You know, on during the lunch break, uh, while they were shooting the movie. It's stories like that, you know. He was a character, he was a monster, he was very difficult to work with. He was um, it was during the age when directors were dictators, you know, and they would keep cruel and abusive. The, you know, when he made 
uh, his first epic, which was called Noah's Ark from Warner Brothers in like 1929. It's, it's mainly silent and sound. Several extras were actually killed during the making of that movie. Jeez. Because during the flood sequence, he didn't tell the extras he was going to dump all these gallons of water on them. Because he wanted the shock to be on the expressions to be real. So they dumped all this water and literally several of them drowned. Uh, when he made uh, Charge of the Light Brigade with Errol Flynn, uh, several ho- many horses were killed during the final battle scene, and one stuntman was actually impaled by a spear or a bayonet. I mean, it. He was, you know, he was that guy, and that was common back then. The directors were dictators; they could, you know, order you to be killed, and you would be killed. You know, I. It was. It was a different time back then. And there were several actors who didn't want to work with him. They called him, They refused. They said, "I can't work with status like that." I can see. I can see but, why. <laughs> um, but you know, but um, the thing about it was that he brought in the money. He uh, delivered the product, always on time, always on budget, and he was not a prestige director. Not like a Fred Zimmerman or a William Wyler. He did studio movies product you know and he's kind of put down for that you know because he wasn't considered unique or special but he he was and you have to be talented and you have to be good to make all those movies and make most of them work and to be so versatile in so many different genres that's an amazing thing there there is ample evidence you know across a lot of his films that showcase visual flair and uh, you know just a, a sense of confidence behind the camera there's obviously a very brisk pace to Casablanca and right. you know there's the norish overtones of something like Mildred Pierce showcasing uh actually both Flamingo Road and Mildred Pierce mm-hmm. have two amazing performances by Joan Crawford so he worked very well with her obviously so i mean there's um, there's actually they didn't. They, they they didn't work well at all but they worked together <laughs> but yeah, yeah. Th- their stories about them were notorious they didn't like each other at all oh man well still, still got some you know powerful powerhouse performances from 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 Crawford in both of those films yeah his his speech, his sort of inability to, you know, speak with people meant that as a as an actor's director, he kind of had to leave you to your else, you, you know, to your own. And when you have a a high maintenance kind of star like Joan Crawford, that doesn't always work out. Yeah. Um, whereas, you but, know, someone like Errol Flynn uh, was just sort of doing what, you know, doing what he did. Well, actually, he didn't work well with Errol Flynn either. Errol Flynn eventually had to stop working with him. He said, I can't work with him anymore. Why? What happened? That's really true. Um, He was just too abusive. He was too abusive. And (laughs) I think Errol Flynn left to start working with Raoul Walsh. Yeah, Raoul Walsh. And they made a series of films together. Well, both of them were drinking buddies, and he both could do that. And so uh, he did a series of pitches with Walt Walsh, but after he left working with Curtis, because he said, I can't work with Curtis anymore. But yet, yet, he was able to get all these really, as you mentioned, great performances by people. I, You know, one film I hope to talk about, well, I'll talk about it now, is one 
really overlooked, neglected film. I think it's been kind of rediscovered now called The Breaking Point. That is with John by Garfield. far my biggest discovery. Uh, for, right, for with John Garfield and uh, Patricia Neal, and which is basically a remake of To Have and Have Not. Yeah, based on Ernest Hemingway. Yeah, this, supposedly the story supposedly was that Hemingway was never happy with the have and have not. He felt he felt that they really changed the story too much. Uh, I would agree. So, I think so it's we, a little overrated. I think Howard Hawks' take is a little yeah. overrated. Yeah. So they went back and they sort of redid it cl- more closer to the book, and it is an astounding movie and with a great performance by John Garfield. Oh man! In that film, as a guy driven to the end. I mean, driven to the edge to do things he doesn't want to do. And the final shot is literally one of the most haunting final shots. First time I saw it, it floored me. And in case you don't know what happened, it's a haunting. I was bawling, man. I was like, I cannot believe how moved I am by this movie. And going and doing a little research and finding out, like, you know, John Garfield was – you know, under attack at the time by the House on on American Activities yeah. Committee committee. This was this was basically his last major film. It yeah, was. yeah, yeah, yeah. And you know, this yeah. this has a slight subversive political angle to it going on. And you know, you have a cash strapped hero at the at the center here, and he feels compelled to commit these acts um, due to like an unforgiving economic situation. And you know, Hemingway obviously covered a lot about the Depression era. Um, uh, and it, you know, it touches on the working class in a very conflicting way. That's multi-layered. Uh, the, the woman that played the wife was amazing. Um, I wasn't familiar with her at all, but I want to see more of her work. Um, uh, yeah, and, I believe it's Phyllis Thaxter, I believe. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I believe yeah. Yeah, she, she's, she's something. And then Patricia Neal, Patricia Neal plays, right. The other woman. Yeah. I just, uh, I, I mean, I was so invested in this story and its characters that, you know, by the end, I don't want to give anything away because I kind of want people to discover right. how special this film is. Um, yeah, like you said, that final shot is unlike anything I've seen in a movie from this era. I mean, I mean, it, it's it's almost right on par with the ending of Casablanca. I was kind of like, wow, I can't believe yeah. that he went there. With the fog enveloping yeah. everything until it's almost white out. And uh, that's available on Warner Archive, folks. You want to see it, the breaking point. It's, uh, it's a real discovery. And yeah. it's maybe, yeah. it may be the last really good film I think Curtis made. Um, you know, I mean, he's kept directing movies, but nothing. I'm, I'm hard I'm pressed to think of something he he made that has that kind of emotional wallop at the end of the picture. It's amazing. Phil. Yeah. Amazing besides picture. Casablanca, of course. Right. Yeah. And, and also, um, just like the tension throughout that picture, it's, it, it's suspenseful. There's these scenes with just the tension. You're almost literally at the breaking point yeah. <laughs> to quote the title of the film. I mean, you know, how far is this going to go? He pulls it and stretches it out to suspense. It keeps stretching it out till you almost can't take it anymore. It's please folks. I recommend it highly, highly. Patrick, you know, Patrick, and, I feel, so, I feel like such a dick that I sent you. We're no angels. When I, I, I had no idea how good, <laughs> how good, uh, 
the breaking point is because that is the <laughs> well, Curtis discovery for me. Well, um, you know, I tell you something. The, the the we're no angels. It's not perfect. It's a hell of a lot better than the remake. I don't know how many yeah. people remember the remake with Robert De Niro. I can't believe that's no a bad movie. I can't believe it because you got that cast. You have David Mamet right. writing the screenplay. You have Neil Jordan of all people directing it. Yeah, and it's a bad movie. I it's can't... a horrible film. Yeah. It's a horrible picture. It's it completely laugh free. Laugh free. I know. Uh, but the original with Humphrey Bogart and Peter Ustinov and Aldo Ray. That's the other guy. Good cast. It obviously. has moments. It has moments. It definitely has moments. And and um, of course. Bogart and Curtis had worked together before on more than one occasion. So um, they know each other well. And also, Bogart's the kind of actor you can push around. You know, I'm, I'm quite sure that um, Curtis was on his best behavior whenever he worked with Bogart, you know, because Bogart wouldn't tolerate that. But it has okay. moments. Um, one film I kind of recommend on a very perverse level because it's not great, but it's weird, is um, The Egyptian, which is available on Blu-ray, I think from Twilight Time, uh, which is his big biblical epic for Fox. Hmm. Um, it's not great. As a matter of fact, it's not good. Uh, but it's really perverse in terms of the casting. Originally, it was supposed to star Marlon Brando. And the story was that when Brando came for his first rehearsal on the movie, and that would have been interesting to see Brando work with Curtis. I wonder how that would have worked out. Yeah. Uh, when he came for the rehearsal, um, the lead actress was played by an actress by the name of Bella Darby, who, who whose life story would make a great movie. Um, but she was basically someone who, she was not an actress, who Zanuck and his wife discovered when they were on vacation and she moved into their home and um, became Zanuck's mistress and he puts her in this movie and she can't, not only can she not act, you do not understand a single word she says. And to the point where when I saw the film on DVD, I keep having to repeat all the scenes she was in because you don't know what she's saying. You know, it's, I can't even do an impression of it. It's bizarre. And so what happened was that they replaced Brent and Brandon walked off. He said, I'm not, I'm not acting with her. So they replaced him with an actor by the name of Edmund Perdom, who was a British actor who at the time they thought was going to be a big star. Turned out he wasn't, he can't really can't act either, but it's pretty to look at. I can guarantee you that. Is a, but this okay. is but this is you 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 can see how Curtis's talent had really gone because it's just a flat cinemascope stoic not not stoic's the wrong word stolet movie that doesn't go anywhere with a plot that could be could have been interesting but it's not but um it just shows you what had happened, but it's a huge, expensive film. But this is where he was at at this time. Now he's working for Fox. Mm-hmm. Uh, one film that's kind of interesting, but also suffers from bad casting choices, is an obscure film he made in the early '60s called *A Breath of Scandal*, which he was trying to recreate a sort of Ernest Lubitsch type of movie. 
Ah, a sort of romantic comedy in Europe at the turn of the century. Unfortunately, he had Sophia Loren, not bad, John Gavin, who was sort of like a second-rate Rock Hudson. It collapses. Yeah, I felt that way about I'll See You in My Dreams with Danny Thomas. I wasn't crazy about Danny Thomas in that particular film. Yeah. I just, uh, yeah, he doesn't do much for me. I don't know why. Well, well, Danny Thomas was more famous in TV than he was. Sure. I mean, well, Danny Thomas also appeared in Michael Curtis' remake of The Jazz Singer, ah. which isn't that great either. Right. Uh, as a matter of fact, I saw that a few months ago in Turner Classic Movies. I had never seen, I had never seen that version. It's been it's been done three times. I had <laughs> never seen that version with Danny Thomas. Ain't great. What? Well, but then at least, thank God, he's not in blackface. Oh yeah, but I'll see you in my dreams. Yeah, <laughs> creepy. Um, but you know what? That's the point. Not everyone is a winner, folks. <laughs> no, when you make that many movies, it's we kind make of that hard. many movies. Not everyone is a winner, right? Patrick, but then um, we can talk about some. I want to get Patrick in here too because I want to. What was a what was a huge discovery for you? Um, like a good first time watch for you here. I'm curious. Uh, Private Lives of Elizabeth and Essex. Uh-huh. Yeah. I think that's a fantastic film. I think the I was I was kind of dreading it cuz in general I don't respond to films about royalty or you yeah. know uh things like of that nature but the way in that film that the romance the comp, the very genuinely complicated romance between uh Essex and Queen Elizabeth the 1st uh Essex played by Errol Flynn and Queen Elizabeth the 1st played by Betty Davis the way that they're like genuinely complicated romance sort of dovetails into political intrigue and they sort of become one in the same thing. And mm. it, it's, it's a fascinating, it's really exciting to watch and it's, but at the same time, very heartfelt and emotional and, you know, um, it's a beautiful, beautiful movie. This is again, like in the era of the three strip Technicolor where he was um, sort of just throwing a lot of very, very bright color at the screen and you have this powerhouse performance from Betty Davis and it's which is fun to see because the plot of most Errol Flynn movies is that Errol Flynn is always the smartest, most capable and most on the ball guy in any situation ever. You know, in Captain Blood he is enslaved and he is still smirking. <laughs> you know, um but uh in Private Lives of Elizabeth and Essex, uh you know, Betty Davis, you know, who's one of the greatest actresses of all time, like she is every bit his match and she is running roughshod over him um, in terms of uh, political machinations. And I mean, and just actually in terms of acting as well, the only thing about that film I would say is a little weak is that Errol Flynn, he, he was one of the most charming, uh, most charismatic, most physically capable sort of adventure action, uh, you know, movie stars of all time. But, um, he often struggled when trying to portray like real depth or sorrow or things of that nature. Um, and I think maybe it, the film could have worked a little better if it was someone else, but I do think the movie's uh, very good. And I hadn't never heard of it before then. So that was my sort of discovery of the movie of, uh, of this episode. Um, yeah, that you got a, first of all, you had a really great literary script with that movie. Yeah. Uh, even though he may feel he art, you have, Iconic in that movie. Betty Davis, the first time she played Elizabeth, she played again in another movie for Fox later. 
But um, do comedy stars and then Micah Kirsten, he did it all together. It's basically there for it all together, you know. And number nine, that was, I looked it up. That was one of four movies that year. Yeah. Them out with Michael Curtis had directed. I mean, I, I, I mean, and maybe you know, you look at it like directors today, boy, they would give their eye teeth just to do a movie a year, you know. And this was was again under the studio Hollywood studio system. You had to churn out product every week, right? And if you were under contract, you had to make the film. Uh, there, there is there is a funny story. I hear, I don't know if this is Curtis and Howard Hawks were having lunch together. Both of them were at the Warners. And they, he went to Curtis, and so Hawks said, what are you doing? And Curtis said, you know, I'm doing this picture. It's stupid. It's about some hick who becomes a hero. I, I don't want to do it. What are you doing? Hawks says, you know, they got me doing this stupid film guy who was had an affair with a woman years ago, and now she's married to somebody. And I, I, I don't want to do it. So he says, I'll tell you what, what if we read each other's script, and then I'll do your project if you do mine. He said, okay. So they switched projects, and that's how Curtis directed Casablanca and how Howard Hawks directed Sergeant York. <laughs> wow. <laughs> I've um, heard that story. Yeah, I like uh, I like the the format we got kind of going here. Just found a rhythm with you know discoveries and sort of going back and forth. Um, I want to I want to talk a little bit about one that I just watched fairly recently called Flamingo Road. I talked about it a little bit um, in reference uh-huh. to uh, Joan Crawford and her amazing performance. Obviously, um, better known for Mildred Pierce, but here she's again sort of the face of melodrama. Um, and doing it so beautifully well. And it opens with this voiceover that says there's a flamingo road in every town. And it becomes uh, this metaphor for, you know, climbing the social ladder, uh, you know, an avenue of achievement, if you will. And, uh, you know, she starts out down on her luck uh, as a carnival dancer, uh, falls in love with uh, someone on the wrong side of the tracks, so to speak, uh, a deputy sheriff. That doesn't happen. Does, that doesn't come into fruition. So she winds up um, with a uh, politician in the town, I believe. But mm-hmm. there is a character in this movie that is almost on par with Orson Welles in Touch of Evil, in terms of evil. <laughs> um, uh, it's a character by the, the name of Titus, played by Sidney Greenstreet, who is unbelievable in this movie as one of the Oh, the biggest assholes ever. <laughs> I was just like beyond. I was just like, I wanted to punch the screen. He spoke. Uh, he was, I mean, he's just the, um, the, the domineering, controlling, uh, woman hating jerk that just tries to prevent her from any kind of happiness, whether if it's, you know, through meeting somebody and finding a fulfilling relationship uh, he just sort of shows up and you know acts really confident in every single way and tries to corrupt her and anyone that she's with. There is dialogue in this that is just un- unreal. It's <laughs> at w- one point she looks at him and says, "You know, you have no idea how hard it is to dispose of a dead elephant." And <laughs> there's just like things like there are moments like that. There's just like tension constantly throughout uh, amidst all this political corruption. Um, and you know, it's just class prejudice 
and power done right. Rags to riches, of course. But Joan Crawford, once again, rocking her stuff here. <laughs> Just doing what she does so well. And again, a really beautiful final shot. Um, a very optimistic final shot that's not like, mm-hmm. you know, overtly happy ending, but it's. I just I, I was I found myself incredibly moved and engaged by this film. Um, another true discovery, Mingo Road. So I don't know if it's as easy to find, but uh, yeah, I think it's available. I'm sure it is um, on DVD. I'm sure it is. Um, the interesting thing is that uh, one thing that makes me laugh is that in the movie she plays a hostess. And, you know, because it's censorship, then, you know, really what a hostess really means. Sure. You know, you got to read between the lines. Uh, the other thing you mentioned is Cindy Greenstreet. And oh. you mentioned that. Be- and, and, and the thing about it is that we really don't have really any more. Maybe there are a few here and there, but we don't have the great character actors today that he had back then, I mean, with the faces and the voices. I mean, Sidney Greenstreet has that face, yeah. and he has the voice. And he had an interesting career. He was he didn't make his first movie until he was 62 years old. Wow. He, he, was, he was a stage actor. He was a very well-known stage actor on Broadway and in New York. I mean, I'm sorry, on Broadway and London. And his whole career was on the stage, and John Huston had seen him early, years earlier in a play. So when he was doing his first movie, Maltese Falcon, he wanted Sidney Greenstreet. And the studio said, who is this guy? We never heard of him. And he had a fight for him. And after he made his film debut in um, Maltese Falcon, Warner Brothers signed him to like the 10-year contract. He said, we're not letting this guy go. He's, he's, this is the real deal here. And he made a whole bunch of films until he retired like 10 years later because of health issues. But that voice and that face, yeah. <laughs> I mean, he, you know, it's, it's, um, it's a, he's, he's incredible. Eddie, he steals every movie he's in. Absolutely. He steals every movie he's in. I mean, kind of matched you know. at times by Joan Crawford. Like they're a good pair when they're on screen together, you know, fighting it out and feeling this in- incredible tension it's also just a a really interesting early representation of femininity in american genre cinema like just seeing you know a woman fight her way and try to make a difference in some way even if it's through certain male figures she's still you know striving just to find stability and cannot because of how corrupt everybody is all the men around her are corrupt in some form or another including the one that she loved early on winds up becoming this depressed alcoholic and um yeah it's just a a really complex melodrama that i I, again i found myself wrapped up in that i highly highly recommend and that's something else that you find a lot of curtis film he he likes to revel sometimes in the seedy side of life sure The, the underbelly of life there's a kind of obscure film he made with gary cooper called silver i'm sorry called the bright leaf bright leaf which actually i just saw not too long ago on tcm uh but i have seen it before and in that movie um even though he's romancing one woman patricia neal he's having an affair with um lauren bacall who once again is a uh, woman of ill repute in a movie. Very clearly, 
in the film, even though they never say it, she's working in a brothel, you know, and evidently she is someone who has had a long relationship with Gary Cooper, Gary Cooper's character. But he revels in that. In, in a lot of movies, he likes to go to the underbelly, the seedy side of life. That's what a lot what uh, Breaking Point is about. Um, yeah. Curtis was very comfortable there. Absolutely. <laughs> um, hey, Patrick, do you want to lead the Angels with Dirty Faces discussion here? Because I think that's one uh, worth bringing up. I don't know. I don't know if I can lead it, but I, I certainly like that movie a lot. Um, sure, I do. James too. Cagney's. James Cagney is certainly my uh, – he's one of my favorite actors of all time. And um, I uh, i don't know. I, you want to you want to start at the end? Uh, not oh, to spoil man. Angels with Dirty Faces uh, for anyone, but I think maybe the most interesting thing to discuss is the ending because it's – I mean, number one, it's just a striking, wonderful sequence in which um, – well, basically the, the, the setup is that James Cagney is this gangster – who all of these um, sort of street local street urchins are looking up to. And he finally gets caught and he gets given the death penalty. And all these kids are like, yeah, and he's going to, he's going to take it like a man. And he's not going to, he's not going to flinch. They, and he's just going to spit at them the whole way. Cause he's a badass and he's our hero. And his friend that he grew up with, this priest uh, implores him to, to act like he's scared. Mm. Um, and frightened and and upset and crying in order to look like in his final moments of life to come across as a crybaby uh, as yellow as as they put it and then so that these kids won't look up to him so he kind of has this opportunity by disgracing his own name um and reputation he can save these children except so and he he does it he freaks out at the end and he cries and and he balls like a baby the entire time he's being led to the electric chair. Um, except that I think there's an ambiguity there as to whether he's faking it. Right. Because the, it almost uh, on the one hand, he's saving these kids, but on the other hand, um, he's almost just been personally given the allowance to not be hard and to just, because he got a bum rap. Uh, I mean, the reason he went into a life of crime was because uh, as, as children, the priest and him were, you know, uh, were running around and they were breaking into a train yard and one ran faster than the other and one got away and the other got caught and sent to Jewy and just got caught up in that system. Um, you know, it's very political mm-hmm. kind of look at uh, at gangster films uh, in a way that Warner Brothers was was kind of known for. Not that all of their gangster films were, uh, you know, political like that, but they also did a lot of um, very hard, you know, political kind of films. Uh, but so he's almost that he by give his reputation in order to save these kids. Or you could say that he has just been given an opportunity to have sort of a primal love anxiety and 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 anger over what life has dealt him. Um, and it's, and either way, it feels like a gift. Uh, it's, it's one of those ambiguous endings that a lot of times things are ambiguous and it's kind of fun to argue whether one thing's, whether one thing's one or the other, but ultimately the ending doesn't change what the movie's about. Like for example, minority report, you know, is the ending of minority report all in Tom Cruise's head or not? Well, it doesn't actually change the movie. Like the movie doesn't mean something different if it is in all in his head. Um, but 
But in this case, it really uh, has a lot of emotional resonance uh, for me. It's a really powerful scene. I mean, the rest of the movie, it's really fun, you know, kind of gangster movie. You get to see James Cagney being bad. There's he he was the best because he couldn't he wasn't just George M. Cohen. He you know, he could tap dance like a madman. He he could be charming and funny and energetic, but he could also get this look in his eyes, you know, at the end of this race, sweating and crying, and there's just his face looks all twisted up and he looks like he could just stab someone. You believe him in the way that, you know, you believe Joe Pesci would genuinely stab someone in the neck, you know, with their own pen knife. <laughs> like, 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 like he had that edge to him. And apparently, I mean, he, apparently he was just the, the nicest, most wonderful person, but he was such a talented actor that he could really bring that out. So there's a lot of fun, but that emotional story and, you know, that, that very uh, sort of political story of, you know, why, why did these two people's lives go in such drastically different directions? Was it really, you know, if, you know, what does it say about our system that uh, the fact that one ran a bit faster changed everything? Um, I, I, it's a really, really great movie, but I, I wanted to know what you guys thought about that ending, whether or not you buy it as James Cagney's character is acting or whether or not he's actually sort of just been given permission to be scared and he is accepting it. That's a tough call. You know, I, I have, I have never thought of that before. That's interesting. Yeah. Uh, it makes me look at the film in a different light. Now I simply, I've seen, of course, seen the film before. I simply believe that he went along with what his friend wanted him to do, but looking at it that way, it could be the other way. And th- that brings again, Curtis's mastery of control, that scene, that whole movie could have been sappy and ridiculous, but he has such mastery of control over that story and the emotions in that film that you buy it. Yeah, absolutely. You you can absolutely buy it. I give him mad props for just the choice in that final sequence where, you know, he's walking with all the guards He's sort of standing there with his poker face and he kind of walks off screen and you don't really see it like his, you know, his, his screams and his crying out. You see the yeah. the, the priests, uh, his friend's expression, his reaction you, to that you, happening. You see first. The, the audience and how upset they are. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I thought that made it even more powerful to have, mm-hmm. you know, him, his reaction play off screen. And it's really hard to tell, but I, I, I'd like to think that he did a selfless act. But at the same time, it is, you know, it's brave in a way to admit I'm scared to die and I regret what I've done, or I'm also, you know, mourning in a way uh, the 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 hand that I was dealt and all the shit that I I went through in this life. Um, I, I just think it's incredibly well done with in shadows and reaction shots. Um, well, that's that's typical for Warners at the time. They were very much into social consciousness movies sure. in the 1930s. And there's a there's a film not directed by Curtis, but there's an earlier film called Invisible Stripes with um, George Raft, which is about an ex-con who tries to go straight and really wants to do the right thing, but society will not give him a chance. And he goes back into a life of crime. Now, you've seen that story before, but 
the way how the film is done, you really sympathize with this guy and you really understand what the choice that he makes in the movie, particularly at the end, where in effect, so like he sacrifices his life in a way sure. to make things right. Um, Warners was big on that at the time. I mean, the other studios weren't, but Warners was very much into, you know, I was a fugitive from a chain gang, you know, social consciousness movies. You know, don't forget, the country was in a depression. You know, by 1939, we still the country was still not out of the depression. So, um, you know, that was on people's minds. You know, with the situation, with the height of the depression, something like 37% of the population was unemployed. Now, can you imagine today if 30, you know, now the big, a big deal if 10% is unemployed. Can you imagine what would happen in this country today if 37% of the population was unemployed? You know, the silence I'm amazed. <laughs> I'm am, right. I'm amazed there wasn't a revolution back in the 1930s. I'm, yeah. I'm really amazed. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm amazed um, by, I'm amazed by angels with dirty faces. And again, um, talk about power, powerful endings and great lines. That last line, let's go say, a prayer for a boy who couldn't run as fast as I could. I mean that, Oh, mm-hmm. like it just, and it showcases like how life can change in an instant for somebody, you know, and how it did for both of them just based on that one act. Like, Oh, I, he couldn't run as fast as I could. And look at how that one course of action led to this, you know, life of crime that he eventually went to lead. Uh, but on a lighter note, the, the the scenes with him and the dead end kids are great. I think those are really re- just incredibly entertaining and fun, too. I mean, they're, yeah, they're a really fun group of kids. Um, yeah. I was going to ask Sergio. I so they come. They're they're called the dead end kids. They were a cast of kids that were in a stage play called the Dead End, and then they were in the right. film as well uh, right. with Humphrey Bogart, Dead End. And then in this, they're just cast as the Dead End kids. Were they in many films after Angels with Dirty Faces? Oh, yeah. They did a whole series called uh, well, The Dead End Kids. They did a whole series of low-budget comedies with Hunt Hall and huh. Leo Gorski. And, I mean, they did a whole slew of them, um, low-budget movies, comedies. And, I mean, they stripped away the social consciousness, and it was just simply, you know, they go to they get a horse, and they take the horse to the racetrack and try to make money on it. And they did a whole series of these pictures. Um, I haven't seen those films in years, because they used to, once again, they used to show that stuff on TV a lot all the time. Um not anymore, unless maybe you go, you see him on TCM or something like that. But yeah, they went on to do a ton of movies as, you know, these programmers, the dead end kids. Yeah. But, you know, you're talking about, um, talking about Cagney and Curtis, then I have to bring up, I was going to bring up anyway, uh, Yankee Doodle Dandy, which is, of course, one of his most popular movies. Yeah. And the thing about that film is that uh, that film could have been really over. It's of course it's a patriotic movie. It uh, revels in Americana, but it never. It's always controlled. Once again, Curtis is a master control. It never gets overbearing. It never gets over the top, and you buy it. Everything in that movie, of course, is anchored by a knockout 
performance by James Cagney as George M. Corham. It's one of the most joyful, exuberant performances you'll ever see in a movie. You know, I mean, he literally cannot contain himself. And the final scene when he's walking down the steps of the White House, he's just met the president. He's given him a medal. And all of a sudden, he's walking down this long staircase, and he breaks into a dance. Mm. while moving down i keep i can watch that over and over again how does he do that that was he's I, walking and, and he just starts dancing you dancing. know doing the tap dances down the stairs that's what i submitted to your clip party jim yeah we, <laughs> that's that's a, that's the lightning round clip i submitted that's right that's one of my favorite things absolutely right. and then and then um and then then you go from that and then he does um um uh, well, <laughs> he does Night and Day, which is the musical biography of Cole Porter with Humphrey Bogart. And mm. the only thing, the only similarity that movie has between Cole Porter, between the movie, the only similarity the movie has with Cole Porter's real life is that there's a guy named Cole Porter. Uh, they do play his music. And in real life, Cole Porter was severely injured when he was riding in Central Park and his horse fell on him and crushed his legs. And he never really recovered after that. Other than that, the movie's total fiction. <laughs> the Yikes. movie is like ab- absolute total fiction if you compare the, the real story of Cole Porter, you know. But it's light, it is breezy, and of course, Cole Porter looked nothing like Comfrey, looked nothing like Cary Grant. Yeah, I and, and going back to my thoughts on "I'll See You in My Dreams," it's another biopic that I initially was like excited because it starts off with this exterior shot of Chicago from way back when, and you know, it sort of glides in this sort of cool sequence about a musician trying to sell his song, and it had a lot of energy going for it. But then, you know, once he gets married, it sort of goes through those familiar biopic beats that you've seen in everything, like Walk the Line. Uh, and, and the musical numbers were, I mean, the music's good, obviously. But, um, yeah, it just didn't, it didn't stand out in any way. It just seemed like a typical conventional biopic where all the beats hit exactly the way you expect them to. I mean, Doris Day, obviously, is great and you know, when she sings, it's, it's, it's amazing. Um, but it's also very slight. And like I said, Danny Thomas didn't do much for me. But don't, don't forget, Curtis also directed an Elvis Presley movie. I wish I'd seen King that. Creole. I wish I'd seen that. King, 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 King Creole. That's right. Once again, his fascination for the underbelly of life about a guy who gets involved with gangsters. It's actually one of Elvis Presley's best movies. I've heard that. And yeah, not surprising. That. And um, it's once again, it's kind of overlooked. People like Jailhouse Rock, or I mean, uh, some of that Jailhouse Rock, but but or uh, Viva Las Vegas, of course. That's mine. But but Kid, King Creo is pretty good. And uh, once again, it's like Curtis did everything. You know, even Elvis Presley, he did everything. I wonder how he worked with Elvis Presley. That would have been interesting. You know, <laughs> been on the set to see how that worked out. Um, but you know, just the versatility of this director is just astounding to me. It just absolutely astounding to me. Uh, but once again, it's 
that's what had to be done at that time. He wasn't alone. There were other directors who also were just as versatile, did not maybe were as good or well as well known, like Lloyd Bacon or Gordon Douglas, who I mentioned earlier. But um, you had you had to be like that in order to survive in the business at that time because you had to make movies, and unless you were Hitchcock or someone someone the love of a Hitchcock or um, a, a Howard um, John Ford, um, you basically had to be able to do everything and be versatile and limber enough. And as I said before, Curtis was amazing because he was not American; he was Hungarian. He never learned how to speak English well, yet you can look at a film like Yankee Doodle Nanny and say, this is one of the most American films I've ever seen. Or look at his westerns, such as, um, you know, as I said, Dodge City or Virginia City. Um, and you go like, wow, this is a guy who must have seen westerns all his life. Nope. I didn't get to uh, Dodge City and Patrick, you did? Was it, yeah, is, it worth a, is it worth a look? I think it's worth a look. It's... Um I, I I saw most of the big Errol Flynn uh, Curtis collaborations, and of those, I think Dodge City is is of the major ones. I think Dodge City is kind of the weakest. Hmm. Um, I, I think. Oh really? Okay. I, yeah, I, I think it's a I think it's really gorgeous movie. I think there's a couple of really wonderful sequences. It opens with this uh, race between a, a train and this uh, stagecoach, and hmm. it's and it, that's a really cool sequence that sort of you know sets the themes of the movie which is sort of the machine of progress swallowing up these, you know, uh, people and, and then having to adjust for that by like, Oh, actually, no, we need to get a sheriff in here, fight crime and stuff. I, uh, and the, of course there's the, uh, bar fight. It's maybe the craziest bar fight in the, <laughs> oh. and that has ever, ev- that has ever happened in any film since, or then it, yeah. it is, it, it, it is just on this side of a riot. <laughs> it's uh, like clip party four. Here we come. <laughs> yeah, I, uh, I, is, I, I love good one of the parts. most insane things. It's one of the most insane things I've ever seen, and it just keeps going and going. Like, there's a couple really strong scenes like that. It's that's why I say like it's an enjoyable movie worth watching. The story itself felt very predestined. Uh, it felt it felt very predetermined. I knew kind of all the beats that were going to happen. And a lot of the stuff that I really did want to see where Errol Flynn just first starts cleaning up the town sort of get swept away to a montage, um, which I was disappointed by. Great ending. Good ending as well. Um, I just it, I just don't think it, it stands up to, you know, Captain Blood or the Seahawk or Private Lives of Elizabeth and Essex or, of course, you know, Adventures of Robin Hood, which is one of the most effervescent, exciting, uh, joyful pieces of mainstream entertainment ever made. I liked it when I was a kid, and I haven't seen it in a long, long time, and I wanted to rewatch you didn't, it. You didn't get a chance to rewatch no, Adventures of Robin Hood? No, but I will. I, I'm going to watch it soon. I won't say it's I won't say it's Errol Flynn's best performance. I think I think the Seahawk he's able to show more sides of himself. He's able to be convincingly like like I said before. Like the thing about Errol Flynn movies is he's always the coolest, smartest, most capable guy in any situation, and sure. and it can suck a lot of the tension out of a scene if. You're expected to fear for his life. And, you know, Adventures of Robin Hood, you, that is never the case. He's always just the greatest, and that's fine. It totally works in that movie. But in The Seahawk, he's actually able, you know, he becomes uh, enslaved by the Spanish Armada. And, you know, he's in a, 
he's in the galley of a of a of a of a ship where he you know he's rowing, um, and you he he's able to convincingly show that sort of pain and anguish and and it actually does it is able to raise tension like how is he going to get out of this one what's going to happen where I never feared for a moment when he was enslaved in Captain Blood that he would do anything less than smirk his way through the problems. <laughs> So I think probably Seahawk is his best performance, but I think probably the movie that best fits to what Errol Flynn was as a movie star is The Adventures of Robin Hood, which is just effervescent, bubbling, joyful, uh, uh, sort of sneering, not sneering, uh, smirking, uh, um, what's uh, egotistical. Uh, he's, he's great. He's he just always knows he's the cleverest one there. And that first scene, um, that first sequence where he, you know, crashes, uh, what, who's the King who's there when King John, that King first John in the show from Nottingham. Right. Right. When he first when crashes, he crashes King, the, 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 right. It's the greatest thing ever. Uh, yeah. because with the deer, he has, he comes in with the dead deer over his shoulders. Yes. They, they, <laughs> right. had, they just finished talking about, well, Everything's going fine except for this one person that we need to go out and kill named Robin Hood. Well, what do he do? Oh, he killed a deer. And then 30 seconds later, he is in the hall with the deer he just killed. And he's like, yeah, what you going to do about it? Uh, I, I think Adventures of Robin Hood is – and of course, it is the most gorgeous Technicolor movie. The, the pastel colors and the vibrant – every costume is all primary colors and – it, it's just a big Crayola box. It's wonderful. Yeah, I, remember, I, I remember being very colorful. And I, yeah. I, I honestly wouldn't mind doing a bonus episode next year, maybe, of just some Robin Hood movies. Because yeah. I haven't seen Robin I can't, and Marion. Yeah, Robin and Marion's the only other one that I really like. I don't know if there's any other like straight adaptations of Robin Hood that I'm a huge fan of. Well, you know, I must say, even though it has its faults, I do still like the Kevin. Whatever happened to Kevin Reynolds? The Kevin Reynolds. I like Kevin Reynolds. Um, yeah, Kevin Reynolds, Robin Hood, uh, Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, with Kevin Costner. Mm-hmm. You can argue it's miscast. You can you can argue a lot of things, um, but it's fun. It's sure. a lot of fun. Alan Rickman is stunning in the picture. I mean, he is a joy to watch Always. as the bad guy. Yeah, and he's no, and he knows it. And um, it builds to a wonderful climax. I never forget seeing the movie for the first time and the audience was there. And they were cheering and hollering at the final scene when they were about to be executed and they're saved at the nick of time. It's a, it's a good film. You, you can fault it, you know, and everything, unlike the disappointment of the um, – of the uh, Ridley, Scott. Ridley Scott, yeah, right. Which I don't think nobody likes. Um, but but yeah, yeah, you yeah. know, the, the, Rick, the, the Kevin Reynolds film is a lot of fun. It yeah, is. I, it's, I miss it's really that a lot guy. Of fun. The, the, the last, I don't know if it was the last movie he did, but that uh, Count of Monte Cristo adaptation he did was really good. So I it don't is. know. I it don't is. Know what he's been up to? Um, that that is a good film. The, yeah. uh, the Count of Monte Cristo also is a, is a good film. That's really only, really sadly overlooked. Yeah, definitely. And underrated. And, yeah, I, definitely. and it definitely deserves another look. I was going to say about the Seahawk, the, the great thing that Curtis does in the Seahawk, also Robin Hood, there's no self-consciousness in those movies at all. There's no winking at the camera. Everybody plays it straight. Everybody plays it 
for they re- like they really believe in the material. Yes, you can see that Errol Flynn is having the time of his life. <laughs> you know, he's smirking through it, but there's there's no attitude that this is beneath us. Everybody gives it his all. And the Seahawk, I think, is a stunner of a picture. I mean, just production-wise. It's incredible. It's, it's incredible. It's absolutely incredible, production-wise. It's it's a stunner. And it's a wide-ranging film that goes all over half the world. And if you've seen the film, uh, the scenes that take place in the tropics are tinted yellow. Yeah, it's, a, it's sepia. Right. Or sepia, that you're correct. Yeah. The sepia tinted to give this idea they're in a heat, this hot, you know, oppressive environment. And the action sequences are just astounding, you know. I mean, um, you know, every studio at that time, in the 40s, they all had a distinctive look and feel and sound. I mean, you could look at a film and you could, and even if you were blindfolded, you could tell was this made by MGM or was this made by Warner's or was this made by Fox? They all had distinctive look and style, and Warner's had the most distinctive look I think of any studio of that period. Hmm. Um, it was the cinematographers, it was the talent behind the camera, it was the talent they had in front of the camera. But um, when you saw a Warner Brothers film you knew it was Warner Brothers. I mean, it was no other studio had a film that, that looked like that. Yeah, it's, it certainly seems that way. I was going to ask uh, if you uh, recall The Unsuspected at all. I haven't seen it, but it just sounded like... I have seen The Unsuspected. Uh, I've seen it. Because, it's again, it seemed to fall under the Norish melodrama genre. Right. That seems to be my, my, my jam, and the plot sounded it's, it's, cool. It's very, much, it's very much in a way... By that mid forty period, when uh, Mildred Pierce yeah. and, and, the, and the film you mentioned before, Flamingo Road, is in that wheelhouse. It's in that realm when Curtis right. uh, was going back to the German Expressionism and the Unsuspected, which is a basically a murder mystery about a mystery writer who tries to commit the perfect crime, uh, played by um, uh, Claude Rains. Uh, it's wallows in German expressionism, the weird angles, the dark, sh- the shadows on the walls, the, the high contrast between light and dark you see in that movie, which very much reflects. As a matter of fact, there's, there's some scenes in the movie where we really anticipate Alfred Hitchcock, like objects in the background, like when he poison someone or has a poison drink, you know, and then we see the shot of the two glasses, you know, in the foreground while the characters are in the background, which really anticipates, or you may say copies, Hitchcock. Um, It's a wonderful picture. Once again, it's another film that's not really well known. Also, it's another film that's available in Warner Archive. Uh, But I have seen The Unsuspected, and it's it's very much, uh, if you like... Curtis in that mode, in that frame, then the uh, the unsuspected is perfect for you. Well, then I'm ordering the te- I'm ordering the DVD for ten dollars right now. Yeah, because <laughs> I yeah. <laughs> uh, after my you know the Flamingo Road and uh, Breaking Point and that that seems to be just my my taste at, at this point with that era of filmmaking. I just love it. Uh, 
Yeah, uh, and like I said, they they, they just released um, a few uh, last month or last month and a half. They released Patches to Marseille with yeah, Humphrey Bogart. I'm curious, which was a which was a follow up to. Now this is this film is the weirdest film you may want to see because <laughs> the structure of the movie is a flashback within a flashback within a flashback within a flashback. Yeah, there is a movie and, with Robert. I want to say Robert Mitch out of the past, or there was a movie I saw recently that's kind of structured that way. I don't know if it was Robert Mitchum that was in it, but yeah, just like it was yeah. a, three flashbacks essentially. Right, and and basically it it tells kind of a rambling story about Bogart, who you can't imagine as a French resistance fighter, but he's a French resistance fighter <laughs> in World War Two, and we're basically told a story of his life. Uh, through a series of flashbacks, and in which part of the film it takes place when he's in prison in um, Devil's Island, the infamous French penal colony, which was off the coast of Africa, right? And um, that's part of the movie. And uh, of course, you got the characters. You had Peter Laurie. You had Cindy Greenstreet. Uh, you have a whole cast of characters. The film got was very controversial because there is a scene in the movie later on when Humphrey Bogart, Humphrey Bogart machine guns to death a bunch of German prisoners who are surrendering. And the scene was considered so cruel and so unnecessary that for a while either that scene was cut or the scene was sent or that scene was cut out or the film was censored because people said that scene went too far. Um, I got no problem with it, but, <laughs> you know, but it's, uh, it, it's, it's, a, it's a bizarre film for the whole structure of the movie. Storyline, story-wise, it doesn't really hang together. But, you know, once again, if you're looking at this picture and you got this cast of characters, you got the director, you still find it's still entertaining and you still go along with it. Oh, one, one other film I can mention very quickly, which also became a very troubled movie. And you mentioned The House of Un-American Activities, a movie that became very problematic for Jack Warner was Mission to Moscow, which was a movie based on a book. Is it the about, Police Academy uh, movie? Uh, is based on a book about the experience of the American Russia, the, Mar- the American ambassador to Russia during the 1940s ah, okay. and during the 1930s and 40s, and of course during World War II, Ger- Russia was our ally, so it paints a very pretty picture of Russia. You know, there, there's no there's no political prisoners. You know, nobody nobody's being killed by on the orders of Stalin and Stalin's portrayed as a very kindly like your Uncle Joe Stalin, you know, you know, just kindly. And of course later in during the uh blacklist era, during the House of American activities during the Red Scare, uh Warner Brothers got into a lot of trouble with that movie, saying that it was promoting communism. It's written by communists. Now I don't know how Michael Curtis escaped it. Uh, being investigated, but Jack Warner had to go to um, to to Washington and testify that he was basically misled making that movie. He had been duped into making that film. Um, it, once again, it's a programmer from the war, and it has a certain agenda, which was we must support our allies, and our allies must support us. It's interesting time capsule of a particular time and place that we were 
at that time during the war may not play today, may look very quaint and odd today, but I look at it as a fascinating time capsule. That's also available on Warner Archive, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, but, I, you I, know, I, like, I, once again, Curtis did that film, so many other movies he made, that it's, I, I can't say enough about this guy. He was really one of the most extraordinary directors, I think, in the history of cinema. And you're very hard-pressed to find anybody today who can come up to that kind of level of the just the right variety of movies that he made and his absolute solid professionalism he never made a bad looking movie yeah there may have been films that weren't great there were films that you know okay didn't work not all of them are perfect but he never made he was never sloppy he was never he was always an exact professional in everything he did completely agree and i think you know Something like White Christmas kind of falls under that category of being absolutely beautiful, has uh, incredible moments. Uh, it's very vibrant, and you know clearly you see it, and it's just one of those movies that's a classic for for a reason. Yet it doesn't connect with me as much as I'd hope. Uh, I, I mean, yeah, I, I think it's fine. It's fine for what it is. You know, obviously, Bing Crosby's beautiful rendition of White Christmas. You know, it's 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 this you know, amazing moment in the film. I uh, I, I just think the plot is uh, eh. it it just doesn't work as, you know, altogether. It's um, fluff. It's, yeah, the it plot, is. It's, the plot's meaningless. It's set up, song, joke, dance, character moment, song, repeat. Um, yeah. Which you know, I mean, it's it's. I wish it was a just a little bit more than. You know what it is. I guess I don't know how else to put it. Yeah, I, I, very, you know, it. Yeah, it's. I remember seeing it. They used to show it like on TV all the time. It was was an annual Christmas thing, you know. Yeah. So I would watch as a kid every week on TV, and Danny Kay always used to make me laugh. So I like the stuff with Danny Kay when he gets to do his stuff. Uh, But it's a flat movie. Yeah, flat. Um, It's pretty to look at, but you know, I believe it was the biggest success. In Curtis's career, box office wise, hmm. I believe it was. Um, it was a monster hit, you know. I mean, but I think the terms of the money that it made, I think it even surpassed anything at that time. You know, it it was really a huge, huge hit for him and for the studio. I was in a movie um, theater. I was drunk in a movie theater not 24 hours ago, <laughs> watching watching White Christmas. <laughs> Yeah, because the, the music box does uh, double features. Was it right. the sing along version? Oh, and people were singing. People, uh, yeah, uh, I don't, I don't <laughs> look. I don't want to besmirch my people, but the, but, but the, but the gays have ruined old going to old films <laughs> because they had not, not, that, not that White Christmas is a serious, important film, but like they had turned it into meaningless camp with the. Uh, Everything was just Rocky Horror. Everyone was shouting at the screen. Oh no! Uh, which was fine because that wasn't you know you're not missing much with that story. Um, yeah. But uh, some very very. You know wonderful- what? You know what? I'm, I must tell you something. I'm glad you brought that up because I was talking to someone today about that about audience participation. Um, things are different today. Now I'm not talking about someone who's dis- someone who is disruptive who is ruining a film by talking or speaking on a phone or something like that. But I really miss the sort of audience participation 
and that was more common, I guess, in the 70s, you know, where people would talk back to the screen. If something was stupid or something was funny, someone would crack a joke and the audience would laugh. Oh, yeah. And it was that whole audience participation thing that made the film-going experience even more enjoyable back then. You know, if the film was good, fine. If the movie was good and people were saying funny things, Great. If a film was bad and the audience was cracking up and making jokes, that was the best time of all. You know, there is. I, I, I don't necessarily agree with you. I think in certain cases, that's fine. Like, for example, uh, before I went to see White Christmas, not 24 hours ago, not two weeks ago, I was in the music box watching Sound of Music uh, sing along version. Um, uh-huh. And that is a it's a running event that they have every year at the music box. And it has just sort of developed its own sort of call and response where, you know, when the Baroness is on screen, you all hiss and everyone makes fun of the of certain line readings and certain characters and, you know, certain innuendos and stuff like that. And I think that's fine because that's what everyone is coming to do. It's participation. Um, if I'm in a regular movie and right. even not even a serious movie like. If I'm if I'm at a midnight movie that's if I'm seeing Purple Rain at midnight and people are yelling jokes at the screen I I do not like it I mean that's you know obviously we can disagree on this but I do not like it at all it's it's very irritating to me right I mean we, we're talking about it has to be the right film yeah sure in a, in the right venue at the right moment right I agree with you I I know I know you know I, I know what you mean yeah I know what you mean um, but by I, the I, way. I know what you're talking about as far as just like when everyone has just accepted this is what this is, um, but it's still not as codified as something like Rocky Horror where literally, you know, you basically have a script of what you're supposed to do when, you know, at Rocky Horror. But like in, in those in-between places, I, I think I think audience participation can be a lot of fun. Uh, by the way, do you know that – and I just happened to know this because I had to look it up. I was finding information on something else. That the sound of music, is, if you adjust it for inflation, if you adjust it for inflation, is the third biggest grossing film domestically in the history of movies. Really? Yeah, sound of music. If you adjust it for inflation – it's somewhere like $1.3 billion that film has made. In and is United that States. just its, its first runs, or is that every sort of revival for, for it's Everything had. is done so far. Everything okay. is done so far. Yeah, I totally I mean, But it's just for inflation. Now, guess what number two is? Uh, ex- Exorcist? No, it's a little down the list, but Exorcist is up there. Number two is Star Wars, the first uh, okay. Star Wars. Okay, yes, yes. Okay, now you can probably guess what the number one film is. Gone with the Wind. Of course. Yeah. Gone with the Wind will still be and will always be the number one biggest grossing film of all time. However, I believe unofficially, unofficially, because we really don't have any real records on it, unofficially, I think the biggest grossing film could be Birth of a Nation. Oh, that's right, because that was a that was a road show that went everywhere. Right, because between when the, it, it opened a hundred years ago, between 1915 to 1940, which was the last major release re-release of that film, that film had made in real dollars at that time 50 million dollars. 
Now, that is a staggering amount of money for a film at that time when, what, it costs a quarter to see a movie? You know, 50 cents? For a film to do $50 million within a period of 25 years. Now, adjusted for inflation today, God knows how much that film has made. And it basically, in a way, is still making money uh, in some way or another. But I, I will argue that – but we don't have any actual numbers of – box office numbers for at least the last 20, 25 years for Breath of a Nation. We don't. Hmm. And, and on top of that, I don't know really who owns it anymore. Uh, or if somebody owns it, they're not admitting to it. But I could argue that it perhaps is the biggest grossing film ever. Could be. I believe it. So we know for sure, on the records, it's going with the wind. Now, speaking of all-time classics, we should uh, we should wrap up on the on the greatest of uh, Curtis's films, probably. It's been canonized as the best uh-huh. film Hollywood has ever made. Uh, you know, it's certainly, um, if not, I, I don't know if it, um, Ebert said that Citizen Kane or Casablanca was his all-time favorite movie, uh, but uh, it's... Is there anyone here who doesn't agree it's an all-time great film? <laughs> you know, uh, I, I, I I was in the music box theater not eleven months ago, <laughs> drunk, <laughs> watching. I, I, wasn't, I wasn't drunk. I wasn't drunk. It was eleven a.m. Was it, it was a Valentine's? Was it, was it a the, Valentine's Day screening? Was it the sing-along version? Yeah, it was the sing-along <laughs> version where we all we all knocked on wood. Um, <laughs> And saying as time but, uh, goes by, over and over and over. Again. Right. Well, there was a sing along beforehand because the you know the music box organist was there and they oh, had oh, the oh. words on screen and he was playing these old fashioned love songs. You know, he he was playing Bicycle Built for Two and stuff like that with the words on screen so we could all sing along. So yeah, it, there was it was the sing along Casablanca. You nailed it. Aww. Um, you know, one of the main things about this picture, and gosh, you know, sometimes it's serendipity, sometimes it happens since. You know, here's a film that basically was kind of hastily put together, very hastily put together. Originally, it was going to star other actors like Ronald Reagan. Ugh. But, yeah, true. It's absolutely true. But it was hastily put together. They didn't think much of it at the time. It was just another movie. You know, and it turned and they recreate and they created this classic. Uh, how they did it, they don't know. It was a could friend, it happen it was again? Like a, a frenzy, no. kind of chaotic. Yeah, it was. It was based Comics. right. It was based on a play that wasn't really very successful. I think it was called Everybody Rick's Place. Yeah, or everybody's welcome at Rick's or something like yeah, that. Yeah, right. yeah, yeah, something around that. Yeah. And and yeah. you know, they just kind of hastily put it together and they assigned it to. Um, Michael Curtis, or maybe he exchanged it, like I said, the story with Howard Hawks, and it came up with this classic. Interesting thing, one of the things is that many of the actors in the movie, supporting roles, were refugees from Nazi Germany. Um, oh, yeah. Right. Many of them were because, you know, when the Nazis t- uh, took control, of course, of Germany, they also took control of the film industry. And many of these performers were either Jewish or they were anti-Nazi and they had to flee. And, of course, many of them came to the United States, of course, including conduct- uh, directors such as Billy Wilder, Fred Zimmerman, Henry Koster, um, Michael Curtis. 
uh, was Jewish, but he had he had left uh, a decade earlier before Nazism took over. And by the way, his real name was Milos Kamimer. Milos Kamimer. He changed his name when he became an actor. He changed his name to Mikhail Kurtesh, which was more Hungarian. And then when he came to the United States, he changed it to Michael Curtis. He directed his first movie in 1912. That's how long his career was. Directed his first movie in 1912. Um, he is supposed to have directed the first feature film ever in Hungary. But he also made many movies in Hungary, in Germany, in Austria, in Denmark before he came to the States. As I said, we don't really know. We know, they know for sure he directed at least at least 40 movies in, in Europe. He may have directed more. Maybe most of these films, I'm sure I'm lost. But at least 40, maybe as many as 60, before he came, before he was brought here to the States. So, you know, and I'm just astounded. You know, I'm astounded. And when he, when he had the time to do anything else? Excellent question. When he had time to do anything else, but getting back to Casablanca, you know, it was just product, and he came up with this, with this, you know, eternal classic that will live forever. You know, one of the greatest films ever made. How did that happen? I don't know. Yeah, I every time I, don't I know. watch it, I'm I'm awestruck. I uh, I I immediately <laughs> just feel such overwhelming joy and and i watch it and i go well this is why i love movies i mean i know it's sort of a cliche thing to say but it really is i that that entire flashback sequence where we learn of uh humphrey bogart and ingram bergman's relationship is one of the best things i've ever seen in a movie i just love it uh ingram bergman has god just one of the best faces ever and the way, again, I know I've probably brought this up many times, but the way, you know, uh, he lights her face in shadow at certain instances and how she looks down and away and at the most perfect moments. I, all that is just I, I mean, I, I read a lot about how a lot of this was sort of happenstance and kind of hastily put together. Yeah, right. But it just doesn't come across that way. It just it seems so controlled and confident and, 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 and beautiful in every way. Um, constantly, and I think moved. you got to give that a lot to Curtis, who won the Oscar for Best Director for directing this film. And I must say, one thing I I love the dialogue, but my absolute favorite uh, line of dialogue in the movie uh-huh. is when, you know, Bogart is Turk talking to um, uh, Claude Rains. He said, "Well, you know, I came out here for the waters. For the waters are in the middle of the desert. I was misinformed." <laughs> yeah, I just love that line. <laughs> you know, but but you know, the thing about it is that the thing I miss. And I, I, you know, I sound like this old fogey, but the thing I miss about romantic films compared to today, to films back then, was that you had people who had lived a life. And you look at movies back then when men and women, they, you could, they've been around the block. They didn't have to say it. You know, they have been through the ringer. And that that life experience that those characters have in so many of those movies comes out in the film. You know, today you got, 
you know, the schlub who's, you know, has to hide for the hot chick and, you know, she hasn't been around, she's too young, she hasn't been around much and he doesn't know much. And I go like, you know, there's a, you know, have you lived a life, folks? Have you had disappointments? Have you been, as a friend of mine says, have you been beaten up by life? You know, and Rick's character, Rick, Humphrey Bogart's character, Rick, he's been beaten up by life. Yeah. You know, and Ingrid Bergman, she's been around the block, (laughs) you know, more times than you can count. Right. And that weariness of life is reflected in their relationship. It's a real relationship. You know, it's two people. Look, this is who we are. You know, there's no pretense here. Humphrey Bogart used to say that he was proud of every wrinkle he had in his face. You know, this is me. I'm not a pretty boy. You know, this is me. You know, you could take me or leave me. This is it. And I love that about these older films, particularly or like a film like Casablanca, you know, people who have lived. Yeah. I like that it's about a fundamental choice that some people have to make at a very crucial point. And they can choose to be selfless. And that's uh, something I respond to in, in thematically in a movie. And uh, that there, there's no denying the power of that ending, even if you watch this movie a dozen times. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's, it works every time. I, once again, how did that happen? I don't know. It's just... And, you know, did they know what they had when they were making it? I'm not sure. I know. I'm not sure. I mean, did they sit around and thought, oh, my God, we're doing something really special here? I'm not sure they did. I think when you're making a film, like uh, when you're making a film, there are so many problems that you have to solve at any given moment. I think you're too busy worrying about what color the poodle is supposed to be. Yeah, right. (laughs) You can't possibly think on a larger scale as to how is this actually turning out. Um, they knew they knew pretty soon though because those first test screenings that came back were every, they instantly Warner Brothers instantly knew they had a hit because everyone everyone in the audience was ecstatic. It was the the responses they got back were through the roof on those. Yeah, I'm, yeah, and you know it, it's it's true today. You can't, and you're right. You can't really tell. I mean, there have been so many stories, some movies that were great movies that were made out of chaos. You know, The Godfather was made out of chaos, Jaws. chaos. You know, Jaws was made out of chaos. You know, and then there were films that everything went great and was fine. Everybody was happy, and, and you know, film comes out, it's a complete disaster. You never know. Yeah. I, I just wonder if maybe, you know, because Casablanca is Casablanca and it's so prominently associated with this director that Curtiz's filmography, you know, it, it, like this just raised the bar so high and everybody looks at this as like the pinnacle and everything else that other, you know, after or, you know, anything else done by this director cannot hold a candle to Casablanca that a lot of his other work gets sort of swept under the rug so to speak, which I think is unfair. Uh, yeah, that's unfair, and you may I think you have a valid point. There may be two, particularly a director who is unjustly who is unjustly characterized as being a studio hack or director without a particular sort of vision. Oh, he just lucked out with this film. You know, yeah, and that's really unfair Agreed. because he made some really terrific movies after that, as we said, Breaking Point, uh, and some other really 
terrific films after that. So I think uh, that's terribly unfair. And also, it's as I said before, I think he still would have been a major director even if he hadn't directed Casablanca. You know, um, he yeah. still would have been a director that's worth talking about and writing about and going out and seeing his movies. As I said before, is everyone a classic? Of course not. No director, no director has ever made a movie that every single one is a great film. Of course not. But um, boy, he has more hits and he has more terrific movies than any other director, I mean, just from his body of work that I can think of. I think there is something less sexy about someone who is assigned a project and does a knockout job of it. I think, especially when you're young, you, when, I mean, this might not be true of all cinephiles. I'm sure there's a bunch of different ways that people get into being into films, but I think a lot of the ways a lot of people go into it is they fall in love with new Hollywood. They like the idea of these renegades who came in and the lunatics took over the asylum and changed everything. Yeah. And a lot of that new Hollywood narrative kind of comes at the expense of old Hollywood. A lot of that new Hollywood narrative is like everything was shit until Francis Ford Coppola and, and Martin Scorsese and Peter Bogdanovich until all that, they showed up, everything was garbage. And there is this sort of idea of the auteur and that's a very sexy uh, alluring concept is like, oh, he doesn't just direct his films; he writes all of his films. He doesn't he doesn't make the film until it's a, he can do it the exact way he wants to do it. Um, there's very few modern directors who are the type that will just work on any kind of project or take assignments that get that sort of cult of personality around them. I think maybe Steven Soderbergh is the only one, and he doesn't make you know main, super mainstream studio product, but he definitely has that sort of work ethic of of an old Hollywood director. Yeah. But and I think Well even, I was well, I was gonna say so does M. Night Shyamalan, but nobody's gonna go around saying that he's like Well, well no, because M. Night Shyamalan the whole, the whole the whole myth of M. Night Shyamalan was oh he's he's this brilliant person. He's writing all right. his own screenplays and that's what sunk him. He's a he's a great visualist. If he had just after Sixth Sense, if he was just taking things studios offered him instead of developing his own material, he would still be working to this day, I bet. Um, but he probably he, would. He, he was sort of fostering his own cult of personality around him being this auteur, and then look what happened to his career. And I, and I think well, even he, he kind of had, had a minor comeback with his, his last film that came out this year. It made some money. I mean, yeah. he made it, it was surprisingly literally for no good. money. I thought it was, he made it literally it for good. no money, and he, well, he yeah. came back. Yeah. Right. Very, very minor, though. It's I sure. don't think it's minor. Like his fall from grace was so hard that even movies he didn't direct, if his name showed up as producing it, people would laugh in the theater. Not just cinema snobs, but just mainstream audiences during uh, during when Devil that movie when the trailers were in theaters when it would say yeah. you know. Uh, from producer M. Night Shyamalan, everyone just burst out into laughter in the theaters because, oh, he's such a hack. He's so terrible. And I think I think uh, these cinephiles who sort of, you know, they they hold up new Hollywood is like, that's the pinnacle. That's the that's everything. Well, Even you know, those you go people back. are sort of shuffled towards all old Hollywood in terms of like, well, Alfred Hitchcock and, you know, Otto Preminger and Howard people Hawks. who. Yeah, Howard Hawks, like people mm. who sort of did their own thing. And and I think. I think there is something to be said about a filmmaker who is a master craftsman 
and who has the versatility that you spoke of. Um, well, right. Sure. You you mentioned Shyamalan. I mean, that has happened before. I remember Peter Bogdanovich. I cannot begin to tell you how big Peter Bogdanovich was in the early 70s. I mean, he was so big that he actually – I mean, he was a celebrity. He actually – guest hosted the tonight show i mean he was so big i mean they would bring him on to be the guest host of the show not a guest but to co-host to host the show um if you watch the trailer this is amazing watch the trailer for what's up doc the trailer is about him it's not about barbara streisand and Ryan O'Neill. The trailer is about here's Peter Bogdanovich working on his new hit movie it, before he came out. What's up, Doc? I have never seen a trailer like that before, where the trailer is is him, footage of him directing the actors. He was that big, wow. and his fall from grace was so big, it was such it was it was so overnight, it, and he never recovered. He never recovered from well, that. He's going to be one you know, of So it happens before. He's going to be. Believe me, it's happened before. He's going to be covered in 2016. Uh, teaser alert. <laughs> oh, really? Uh, yeah, oh. I'm, I'm excited to talk <laughs> oh. about. I, I'm excited to talk about him because uh, I'm obviously I love the Last Picture Show, but there's a lot of movies of his that I haven't seen. So uh, I'm excited to talk about. If you haven't seen Paper Moon, I think I still think Paper Moon is his best film. I, just, I agree. I adore that film. Yeah. Yeah, I, 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 I think that's where it's at. Yeah. Okay. Well, I want to give our top three Michael Curtiz movies here, as difficult as that might be with how large of a filmography he has. Um, I can yeah. go. I can go first because sure, it turned out to be relatively easy. But obviously, there's a lot more I need to catch up on, um, as evidenced by our conversation. Number one is Casablanca, obviously. Uh, number two is The Breaking Point. And number three is one we didn't discuss, but obviously most people know it. And I caught it in my film class at Purdue, and we discussed the use of lighting extensively. And that would be Mildred Pierce. Ah, uh, yes, yes, okay. Yeah, I would say my number one is uh, – it's. I, I always want to reserve my number three spot for like a movie that I want to recommend to people, but Michael Curtiz has too many bona fide classics for me to put Dr. X in there. So I'll just say, <laughs> uh, check out Doc, Dr. X. It's a really cool, creepy movie. Um, but my number one is Casablanca. My number two is The Adventures of Robin Hood. And my number three is, I think it might be, it's a, it's a split between Mildred Pierce and the Seahawk. Um, I I I was I was floored by the Seahawk. I had never seen it before uh, preparing for this episode, but Mildred Pierce is still Mildred Pierce. Um, my choice number one, I had to say Casablanca. Number two, I have to say Seahawk, and I should also mention great score by Wolfgang Eric Wolfgang Korngold, who did so many of Warner Brothers scores. Um, that's that's a show you should do on Korngold because. He was a serious classical composer who really turned his life, changed his career when he started writing for Warner Brothers. And then when he went back into classical music, couldn't take anybody, anybody wouldn't take him seriously because he'd been tainted by Hollywood. But uh, Casablanca is number one, Seahawk is number two, and number three, I have to say Breaking Point. Yeah. Well, I'm going to, I'm going to be watching the Seahawk uh, before we record our, 
episode 100, Patrick, which is also the best of 2015 episode coming up in the next uh, week or two here. I wanted to um, tell everybody that's listening to start sending me your top 10 favorite films of 2015 to directorsclubpodcast at gmail.com so we can read some and uh, we'll play some voicemails if you uh, send me your send me your voicemail or leave a voicemail I should say. Um, do we still have a voicemail number, Jim? We do. And what what is that number? You know that that's I can insert that later. Uh, okay, sorry. And I should have had that in front of me. You know what's funny? Yeah. You know what's funny is I, I did. Yeah. Now, now you know. What- it's funny that I did not put that on the uh, new version of the website, and I'm yelling at myself right now. Voicemail number is 224-366-9528. That's 224-366-9528. Uh, the first week of January. Jan- it might be January 4th, 5th, 6th, 7th. We don't know yet. We'll, we'll get there. Um, so I'm going to say send in your list by Sunday, January 3rd. Uh, that would be a good good enough time for you to catch up on everything. And uh, we're looking forward to hearing what your favorite films of 2015 are. That's going to be one hell of an episode 100 for us, Patrick, because uh, not only will we'll be discussing the best films of 2015, but Bill Ackerman will be joining us, and we're going to have a discussion, a sort of retrospective on what it's like hosting this ridiculous show for the past few years and getting Are we? So, uh, getting okay. to episode 100. So it will be an inevitable two part, probably four to five hour <laughs> extravaganza, I imagine. Sure. And we'll be drinking. Yeah, so yeah. Well, that's always that's fun. Yeah. <laughs> uh, um, uh, but before I go, I, I before I go, I have to say, if if I can, I think my absolute favorite film of the year, and it was so many yeah, great films this ask. year. Um, I, I love The Big Short. Of course, I love Fury Road. Uh, Big Short, I've seen like three times already. I, I think it's amazing. Wow. Spotlight. But my favorite film of the year, I will have to say, is The Relevant. Relevant just absolutely uh, knocked me The out. Revenant? Revenant, yeah. Yeah, I'm hearing great things about it. Um, I'm just, excited. Oh, you haven't seen it yet? No, not oh, yet. Oh, my God. Not yet. It's, oh, uh, my God. It's, uh, it's, uh, now, here's the thing. It's kind of like a remake of a film. See, this is what happened. This is why. <laughs> this is why. This is why you're cursed being older, right? Because you remember stuff. It's a remake. Not really a remake, but it's another telling of of a same story that was done back in the early seventies called Man in the Wilderness with Richard Harris. It's the same story about the guy. It's basically a true story. A guy who was a trapper who got mauled by a bear, left for dead. He survived and went after the people who deserted him. It's the same story. Oh, wow. Except, okay. except Iratu's film is a thousand times better than Man in the Wilderness. A thousand times. Particularly the scene when he's attacked by the bear. In Man in the Wilderness, is a guy in a bear suit. I'm not joking. It's a guy in a suit. Oh, God. But in the wilderness, I mean, in, in Iratu's movie, wow. It's it's a stunner of a film. It's emotionally draining. It's tough. It's hard-bitten. You don't, you don't have too many hard-bitten movies these days. Uh, DiCaprio gives, I think, the performance of a lifetime, considering he only has maybe about 15 lines of dialogue. 
Wow. Okay. In the entire movie. That's that's what it's I'm hearing. Him, I'm, I'm hearing it's his best performance It's him ever. enduring and suffering for two and a half hours. Enduring and suffering. But you so you get so wrapped up in this film and what he goes through. And it's stunningly shot by Emmanuel Lubisky, who shot it all natural light. It's all natural light. They use no artificial lights in this film at all. Um, Great. It, and you, it, it must be seen on the big screen. It's really got to be seen on the big screen. You know, we're you, you, you got to take it all in. We're making that a priority. I plan to catch up with the big short and Carol very soon. So uh, there's, yeah, I need to see Carol too. I have not seen that either. Awesome. Um, well, yeah, where I can, have not seen it. Where can people read some more of your work? Are you online at all? Right. And stuff? Well, like I said before, my website, which is on IndieWire, which is a shadow and act, uh, Shadow and Act, which is covers everything in terms of black cinema. Uh, we're the biggest, but we're with IndieWire. You can go to Shadow and Act slash IndieWire dot com. Uh, one of the things I do every Sunday is to uh, do the box office report, and uh, you know, of course, most of my report today was about the Force Awakening, which has broken every record conceivably in the history of cinema. It is extraordinary, you know. I mean, it was expected, but uh, I will tell you this. The film has already done over half a billion dollars worldwide in about five days. Oh, my God. You know, in about five days. Uh, I'm Worldwide, in about five days. Uh, it could be, it could be the first movie to make a billion dollars in real dollars in the United States alone. It could. We shall see. I don't think it will, but it will definitely will top Avatar, which is still is the biggest grossing film in real dollars. Um, but I think it could do it. But I think it's marketing, and I think it's a movie that everybody has been waiting at least a year to see. And I suspect, tell me if I'm wrong, I suspect one reason why people were interested and so excited about this movie was because they knew it wasn't directed by George Lucas. Yeah, that's certainly that's part, part of it. it. Am I wrong? George, yeah. yeah, if George Lucas if George Lucas came back and said, All right, we're doing a third trilogy, it would not be nearly the same. Yeah. Definitely right, the clean right, right. slate and the and the promise of a return to roots is yeah. is the focus of their marketing. Mm-hmm. I mean, every, yeah. everything they've done in the behind the scenes stuff and you know, it's all about, look at all this, look at all the practical effects we're doing. Look, we're shooting on film. They, yeah. Just like those Star Wars movies you do like, like this is, that's definitely part of it. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, I, I have a friend who's been on your show, Colin Suter, who's been on your show. And he told me he saw a documentary about the making of uh, Phantom Menace, where there's a scene in the, in the movie where, they're in the uh, studio. They're in the screening room, and they're seeing the movie for the first time, the first cut. And George Lucas is like devastated. He said, "I blew it." You know, he just knew. He knew. He just said, "Oh, brother, what did I do?" You know. <laughs> and, I mean, he knew that he, you know, he messed up. Um, so I think that is part of the appeal: the fact that J.J. Abrams, this is a fresh face. Um, someone who will bring something different to it. Well, no, but yeah, it's the same. It's the same. It's the same. But it's but good. It's different. But, but it's, it's good. the same. It's good. The same. Right. I guess. 
Right. Yeah. And and the fact that, you know, it wasn't contaminated by Lucas. So I think people were saying this has a real shot of being good, you know? Yeah, it's And it, it's hitting all the bells and all the whistles, man. I mean, people are loving it to death, you know? I mean, it satisfies, it's satisfying everybody. I haven't heard any negative. Well, I mean, yeah, there's some critics who don't like it. Yeah, but I, I haven't heard anybody who is, you know, bad-mouthing this movie. I like it. I, I'm not crazy, but you know, I'm, not, I'm not like, wow, it's the greatest thing ever. I'm not like that. You know, it didn't blow me away like The Relevant, you know, or Big Short, because I go more into those type of movies. Sure. But I understand where people are coming from. I understand it, you know. You know, this is a, this is a dream that they've been waiting for for a long time. You know, and finally it's come true. Oh, great. Um, really appreciate it having you on the show again, um, Sergio. Really. I, uh, I always look forward to talking with you because I learn so much every time. I really do. Like, even if it's just listening to you on uh, WHPK with Colin and Eric, I always find myself yeah, right. making, making Oh, and by notes. the way, I'm glad you mentioned <laughs> that. This Tuesday, this Tuesday, this Tuesday, Colin is going to be on my show. Just Colin. This Tuesday. Uh, 12 noon on HPK. It's just going to be me and Colin. And then the following Tuesday on the 29th, it'll be the regular. It'll be me, Colin, and Eric. Nice. But this Sunday... This, I mean, this Tuesday, the 22nd, is me and Colin. And I've never done a show with just Colin before, and that'll be interesting. And we're going to go more into not just movies, but also being a film critic and what it was, how we got into it, and movies that inspired us and well, cool. our past experiences. I, I got a bunch of questions for Colin. I got a bunch of questions for him. So that's this Tuesday on WHPK. That's a good uh, That'll be a lot man. of fun. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I'll, I'll include the link to to the the um, radio station website in the show notes so people know where to go. Thank you so much. I do appreciate that. It's going to be a lot of fun. I've yeah. never, I you know, I've never done a show with just Colin before, and and um, and I like Colin a lot. He's oh, a yeah. savvy guy. He's a great guy. He knows a hell lot about movies. And and he's a real. I I have to ask you how many times you've seen Star Wars already. I I know <laughs> I know he's seen it twice already. Three times. And I know one of them was like a five thirty a.m. show. Yep. So right before work, baby. I, I, <laughs> yeah, that's Colin for you. Know, but that's what Nick is. Anybody seen. who who anybody who goes to see a five thirty a.m. show before he goes to work, that's serious. Uh, Nick you know. Nick DeGilio has seen Mad Max Fury Road twenty five times. <laughs> yeah i believe it no he's probably seen magnolia even more that's true that's true. uh probably yeah i was talking probably. i was i was at work talking to colin about out of print woody allen movies not five hours ago yeah funny <laughs> i i got i got the same thing too and i, I had one but i don't have it anymore i couldn't help him out yeah, I, I, couldn't help I, him out. I was able to help him out because our store doesn't have September, but I own September, so I'm I'm gonna okay, come up with good. September. Oh, that's so yeah. Nice. I I fortunately I couldn't help him out. I had one and I loaned it to someone, and now I I don't remember who it was. I don't think I've ever seen. Uh, so, but but he's he the people are, see that's what we do, folks. That's what we do. We help each other out. You know? Do you have this? Do you have that? I need to see this. I need to see that. We help each other out. You know? Absolutely, Sergio. It was a blast, man. Thanks again. 
Uh, hope you have a Merry Christmas, man. Thanks a lot. Well, thank you so much. I, I love doing this show. It's a real joy. Thank well, you so you'll, much. You'll I hope I can again. do it again. You'll, you'll be back again next year, uh, probably around the same time. Yeah, let me find <laughs> let me find another old-timey director to talk about. Okay, thanks. All right. Thanks a lot, man. <laughs> thanks, guys, so much. Okay. okay. And, I, and I would like to plug a specialty video. <laughs> where I work now that I'm not now that I'm not on the podcast anymore I'll just go ahead and plug uh, my job if you want a video store in Chicago uh, we've been there 15 years we have uh, over 30,000 titles um, including a lot of out-of-print stuff um, including some VHS as well uh, so you know if you if you're mad because mighty Aphrodite is weirdly out of print because Mir- everything that Miramax owned in the 90s is suddenly gone and there's no one putting that stuff out again. Wow. Uh, really? We have mighty Aphrodite. Yeah. Yeah. It's, huh. it's like a, it, cause my Miramax doesn't really exist anymore. It's just like owned by a holding company. And a lot of those, you know, late nineties films just kind of, they got one release right when DVD was came out because they were new films and then they sort of never got fixed. So, so there's actually a lot of films that just have kind of shitty releases from 1998 still. So flirting with disaster. Flirting with Disaster has another release. Okay. Uh, I have the original release, the terrible non-anamorphic Flirting with Disaster, but that is a perfect example because that yeah, that's terrible. Mighty Aphrodite is out of print, I believe. Um, stuff like that. Wow. If you need to see Deconstructing Harry, uh, come to Specialty Video. If you want to watch gay cinema, we have a lot of that. That's kind of our specialty. <laughs> um, so that's fifty three oh seven North Clark Specialty Video. Tell them Patrick sent you, and they'll shrug and go, okay. <laughs> that's honest. Okay. Yeah, pro- that probably will happen. Yeah. Go- All right. Well, thanks, thanks, again. Th- thanks a lot again, guys. Thank thanks, you so Sergio. much. Thanks, Sergio. Merry Christmas to you and your family, All right. man. Okay. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Um, uh, where else can we read you again, Patrick? You're on Letterboxd, aren't you? Yeah, I'm on Letterboxd. Uh, I'm, I'm still, I'm still doing that stupid thing. Uh, it's not stupid. You write good stuff. Uh, okay. We'll, we'll agree to disagree there, but at any rate, I'm on letterboxd at Patrick Rapol. Yeah. I'm at, I'm at letterboxd at instant gym. Um, I don't write as much as I'd like, but, um, you can see me, you know, click on some stars there once in a while and Twitter instant gym. Although I don't tweet as much as I used to. Busy times, busy times. Uh, lots going on. The podcast network is going to come into fruition within the next month or so. Uh, yeah, lots of good stuff in the forefront. Like I said, the best of 2015 episode, first week of January. So get in your top 10 list at directorsclubpodcast at gmail.com and visit us at directorsclubpodcast.com. Um, so, yeah, Patrick, this was great, man. Um, yeah. Thanks. I think so. Yeah, <laughs> we're back. We're doing it. We're back. The, the natural off the cuff banter that we're famous for. Exactly. Maybe we should talk about House of the Devil some more. Oh, that'd be great. <laughs> Could I can, I? can I yell at you for liking a Sofia Coppola movie? Sure. Okay. Yeah. Uh, then that'll work out. Hey Jim, how about a little a little sneak peek at our top ten episode? What is your number forty eight film of the year? <laughs> Um, what is the 48th best film of the year for you? Uh, I don't 48. I don't yeah, know. Have 48. I, how many have I seen this year? You've definitely seen more than 48. Cause you've seen more than me and I've seen 52. 
I'm probably have to look at my list and cheat. I'm sorry. I don't know off the top of my head. Oh, name one. Throw one. Um, how about that nobody liked and that nobody saw that I thought was okay? There's okay. Little- the 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 James Franco. Uh, uh, yeah. Seth. No, uh, Jonah, Jonah Hill, James Jonah, Franco. Jonah Hill joint. Yeah, Felicity Jones is in it, and she's really good. She has a great scene in it. Uh, it's it's messy. It's not really like any. It's not breaking new ground. It's just it's just one of those interesting true stories that uh, I think got unfairly dismissed. Um, yeah, but it, it's almost like Foxcatcher, and I mean it, it's it's not nearly as good as Foxcatcher, but it's one of those movies where it was like it's cold, it's distant, it's kind of clinical, and it's not really like emotionally charged in any way to where you're mostly on the outside looking in, kind of a feel. But uh, I thought it was, I thought you know both of, both of the lead actors were good, not great. Um, I just it was one of those movies that, like why did everybody hate, outright hate this movie so much? Maybe it's because like. Uh, lifetime e kind of stuff but i i found it to be an interesting mystery and i wanted to see where it was going so i was never bored um so maybe that would be my number 48 now i'm curious to that, see sounds, if I was that sounds right. like that sounds like you're 48 i rented a true story to someone not five hours ago was it the sing-along <laughs> version james franco sings um finally finally yeah he uh, sings, a, he sings a britney spears song my number 48 is Queen of Earth. Mm, that discussion. I'd be a man. Um, I, you, know I, my number 40, you know what my number 49 is? Hmm. Knock, knock. So that's that That gives you an idea of where. Yeah, I'm just, I, I got to see what. I wanna, you, have a, you do a list. I do. I was, oh, I was one off. I was one off. Wait, true, is true story you're 47? Uh, true story was 49. Wow, it's forty-eight. You're not going to be happy because I bet this is in your top ten. Oh, is it? Uh, is it unfriended? Yes. I, I want to watch it again. I might like it more now that I know what I'm in for. We'll talk about unfriended later. I'm I'm not going to say anything about that. Yeah, yeah. yeah I don't. Yeah. I'm not. I'm not mad at you for putting unfriended at forty-nine. Uh, yeah. I I I don't know. We'll talk about it later. I might I might have time to rewatch it again too. There's a couple of in here that. Um, maybe I was too tired when I watched it and I wasn't in the right frame of mind. So I might rewatch them again and see if they click with me a little bit more, but, um, yeah, we, we got, we got one heck of a conversation coming up. I, uh, I checked in, I I checked in a copy of unfriended, not five hours ago. (laughs) I'm not going to say someone someone returned unfriended. And they said this this was terrible, and I go, oh, that's too bad. Uh, <laughs> oh, it's too bad. I don't, I, uh, sometimes they're trying to get like sympathy from me, but I I sniff that maybe they're trying to get like a credit on their account or whatever for choosing a movie they didn't like, which is yeah, it's not fuck cool. Off. That's not how that works. No, not at all. And did then, you get to see the lobster? Did you get to see the lobster? <laughs> I went to Red Lobster. Yeah, um, did you go to Red Lobster? That's what I was asking. <laughs> Why? What do you think I did? I um, it's out there now. Is is it out to rent? Is I don't know. No. Okay, it's out well, there. Well, it might. Well, it might be. It's we don't have it. Yeah, but um, it's circulating in various outlets now, and uh, I'm curious about it. I like big lots. <laughs> yeah, it's over. It, you can get it at Sam's Club, I believe. But um no I just I I I love Dogtooth obviously um 
So I'm curious about what this, I've heard interesting things. I know Bill Ackerman loved it. Uh, I know Jay Shield didn't love it. I, so I'm, I don't know. I'm being a fan. February of 8th. Okay. Okay. It's going to come out on home video. It's weird because I, I thought that's one of those kind of in limbo titles that I wasn't sure counted for 2016 or not. Um, I don't think it ever got like an official theatrical release other than film festivals this year. So really? Yeah. I don't know if it counts for this year, technically, but it doesn't matter if you you watch it, then it counts. So I might, if I have time, I might watch it. Um, And there's another title that I don't know if you've heard of. It's called hard to be a God. That's making a lot of lists. Um, that I'm I uh, I rented out Hard to Be a God to a customer not three days ago. <laughs> it's going to take him three days to watch it. Uh, yeah, yeah. It's quite long. Someone, ret- someone returned it. I said, how how was it? And they said, yeah, it defeated me. I didn't watch that. <laughs> I didn't finish it. I couldn't do it. Oh, is it out to, to rent? Yeah, yeah. Oh, it's on okay. DVD. That's why, that's why I said I rented it out to someone. Okay, I thought you were making a, a callback joke. Oh, no, 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 no. I've, I've never made a joke in my life. This is serious <laughs> business. <laughs> Neither have I. Yeah, it's on Kino Kino Lorber uh, released it on uh, DVD. Okay. Yeah. I wish you could. I, I'm. I wish you I'm could not going to watch it. I wish you could see Sicario uh, and James White. Those are two that I, I I'd be curious to hear your take on. Obviously, you don't have to see them in time for the episode. Right. right. I don't. I don't think there's any theaters in the Chicagoland area that are still playing Sicario. I don't think so either. When's that? That would, that would be something. That is coming out in January. Oh, cool. Well, you don't have to wait that long then. Yeah, but I won't be able to see it before the show. That's fine. Yeah, so we got a, a heck of a conversation. I think I said this already, but we have a heck of a conversation coming up for our best of 2015 episode. And uh, yeah, thanks so much, Patrick, for being on the show again. And yeah. th- thank you in advance for being on episode 100. <laughs> oh, thank you. <laughs> be anticlimactic about uh, a, a monumental episode. So it, it, it would, it would be a monumental episode if I made it, but I didn't, I didn't make it to a hundred Jim, but you're, <laughs> you're, you're still on it. I, you're, you've been on, you've, you've been on every episode, even the ones you're not on in spirit. And I, I probably mention you uh, constantly. Like, is that why, is that why you have trouble with first dates? Cause you also just mentioned me. Yes. <laughs> a lot. <laughs> Well, not whatever. I'm not there. You, you're like, well, Patrick, I know Patrick, Patrick hates me for this, but okay. I'll have the, I'll have the linguine. Like I'll have the lobster. I'll have the lobster. Yeah. I'll consider, I'll, I will consider the lobster. Yeah, that's, that's very true. You, you, you come up in conversations even when uh, people don't even know who you are. And I just say the name Patrick. Yeah. So, <laughs> there's nothing wrong with that. I just want to get your then, name out sir, circulated then, out there. Yeah. And then when they, and then, and then you should go, Oh, Swayze. And then you wink at him. <laughs> like, like, you know, like you name drop Patrick because you're just such good friends with Patrick for, <laughs> with deceased, with deceased uh, actor, Patrick Swayze. Yeah. Or like uh, Patrick Stewart, you know, can go either way. Yeah. Patrick Stewart. He's kind of entered uh, Christopher Walken territory for me. Really? Wow. He seems to kind of know what, who he is now. And he's like, oh, I'm doing a ridiculous thing. I'm Patrick Stewart. And it's all right. <laughs> yeah, that's true. I don't like him being on those cider ads. Can't I deal with those cider I ads. I haven't seen them. Hmm. On YouTube, it's all Strongbow Cider. And the, like the joke is, 
that we don't need any gimmicks to sell you this hard cider. We'll just show you this award. But in the background, out of focus is Patrick Stewart. And he's like trying to get into the commercial and they're like, no, go away. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, everybody. Well, thank you for listening to the long winded outro here. Um, We'll see if you made it. I'm curious, but um, we'll see you next time. Both Patrick and I will be back in action. Looney Tune style for episode 100. First week of January. We'll talk to you. Hey, Jim. Jim. Have a Merry Christmas. Real quick. Have a Merry Christmas. Real quick. Have a Merry Christmas. <laughs> That's all I wanted to say. Okay. Jim, real quick. Have a Merry Christmas. <laughs> Wait, before you go. Don't forget. Have a Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. May your day be merry and bright. And Uh, Nick, you know. Nick DiGiulio has seen Mad Max Fury Road 25 times. <laughs>